Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Dr. Daniel Crosby, thank you for taking some time to join Kate and I on the show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be here. Maybe just to start off with, um, I think a really interesting way to begin is understanding more about your road to psychology, behavioral economics, behavioral finance, and kind of everything that kind of paved the way for you to become who you are today. Um, I was listening to a podcast that you did recently where you were interviewed on your own podcast series, which, um, which in which you, you describe the kind of the, the journey to making a decision between being a financial advisor and a psychologist. And, and there was a story about going to, I think it was the local library. So maybe um, if you can just introduce yourself, what you do today and how you came to be, how you came to make that decision, I guess, in the early days. Yeah. So I'm uh, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am the chief behavioral officer at Orion Advisor Technology. So we're a large fintech firm here based in the Midwestern uh, US. I'm based in Atlanta, Georgia, in the Southeastern US. But I... um, I'm the son of a financial advisor. So my dad is to this day a a financial advisor. He actually got his job on on the day that I was born. So he's been, you know, at this business for for some time. (laughs) And so um, I grew up, I think, unlike most people, certainly most Americans, I grew up talking about budgeting around the dinner table and talking about investing in shares around the dinner table and stock picking and and saving and debt. And, you know, I like to joke, but it's not a joke. Uh, in, in the home I grew up in, we couldn't say the word debt because my father hated debt so much. He, he said it was a four-letter <laughs> word, just like the rest of the four-letter words. And so I grew up in, in a home where conversations around money were, were front and center, which is unusual. So I was sort of steeped in that. But uh, when I went off to school, <clears throat> I actually had a, a loved one who was um, struggling with an eating disorder. And so in the process of, of trying to help this loved one uh, find appropriate treatment, check on them, support them during um, a time in which they were an inpatient near where I was attending university, I really fell in love with psychology and I really fell in love with the, with the process of, of doing psychotherapy. And so got a chance to observe that up close, got a chance to observe the, the power of therapy, the power of clinical psychology to improve and change and shape the, the life of my, of my loved one. And so I, I was sort of torn. I had entered university with an eye to doing what my father did. I had now sort of fallen in love with psychology. So sure enough, I ended up getting my my bachelor's degree uh, in, in psychology. But as part of that process, you know, I, I was struggling still because I was like, ah, is it going to pay enough? What kind of life will this provide? 
And uh, my dad encouraged me to go down to the local bookstore and he's like, go, you know, go pick up some books about investing and, and see if they uh, appeal to you. And they, they didn't. I mean, they were quite boring to me. You know, I, pick, I picked up a couple of books about investing. I'm like, ah, this, this leaves me pretty dry. And so I proceeded full steam ahead with my, um, with my PhD in clinical psychology. Well, about midway through that clinical psychology degree, I was sort of burning out on the process of one-to-one therapy and working with, you know, thousands of patients every year and sort of rediscovered the world of investing a little older, a little wiser and discovered this world of behavioral finance, which was the intersection of my two great loves, which is, you know, allowed me to think deeply about why people do the things that they do like a psychologist uh, but but didn't require me to do sort of the, the stressful day in and day out of a clinical psychologist. So uh, those sort of two experiences shaped me greatly and and sort of landed me at this intersectional sort of discipline that I work in today. Yeah, it's a really interesting um, connection of two different fields. And I don't think there's many people in Australia, I, I haven't come across many that would actually Um, intersect those two fields together. So it's really interesting to chat to you about that today. And I wanted to know, generally speaking, why is it so important that uh, consumers, retail investors, our listeners understand the way that their behavior and emotions impacts their financial decisions in a day-to-day basis? Well, it's a it's a great question, and it's one that most of us are blind to. You know, I talked about how I grew up in this home where finance was was very much top of mind. But you know, when I was a young man, and I called my dad and said, "Hey, you know, uh, I you know uh, I want I want to I'm I'm thinking about a career change," and he said, "Well, hey, you know, there's a ton of psychology in the work that I do." I was incredulous because I was like, what? You're a, you're a numbers guy. You know, you're, you're analytical. You're a numbers guy. You're picking stocks. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing to do with human, human science in, in that world. And I couldn't have been more wrong. And the reason that it matters is when we look at the predictors of financial success, right? When we look at the predictors of whether or not people cross the finish line, and reach their financial goals, uh, the predictors of that are not what we think they are. I think most people think it's stuff like, you know, did I have a high paying job? Uh, Did I pick the right stocks? You know, um, externalities too, like what did the president do? What did the prime minister do? Uh, What did we go to war? You know, what did the economy do? Sort of all these externalities that are out of our control When in reality, the best predictors of financial success over a lifetime is is behavioral stuff. It's things like, did I stay the course over the long term? Did I contribute a small portion of my paycheck every couple of weeks to, to sort of fund my future self? So we tend to look at all the wrong things when we're making attributions about financial success. And so understanding that and, and sort of taking the power back is not only the right answer, it's an empowering answer. You know, it's, you, we realize it's not all about what the president does or what the market does or what the economy does even. It's really down to our decisions. And that's a powerful thing for, for most investors to grasp that they don't immediately. 
Um, there was a, a presentation that you did in the past where you talked about, um, I think you referenced Vanguard's alpha study, and you talked about how someone who is advised by a financial advisor tends to do, uh, in bad times in market crises, tends to do up to 300 basis points or 3% better. Um, but as much as 150 basis points or half of that, so 1.5% per year, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it is because of compound interest, we know, yeah. um, can actually make a big difference. Um, and that, when most people will see a financial advisor, I guess the, the, the general consensus is not, this person here is helping me make, helping improve my behavior. They're, they're thinking that they're going to them for expertise. But I'm, I'm interested to dig into if we know behavior is such a big element of making um, informed decisions that lead to better outcomes financially. Um, we know that for sure. What are some practical steps that people can take uh, with their money and the way that they think um, if they're not advised? Yeah. So the the thing that I would say, you know, I'd, I'd follow up on your commentary on on financial advice. You got you got all those stats right. That's a great summation of that study. But you're exactly right. People, you know, most people need a financial advisor, but not for the reason that they think. Right. The the reason that they think they're going to a financial mm-hmm. advisor uh, is to pick, you know, next year's hottest asset class or to sort of see. Uh, the future economically, financial advisors are no better at that than than the next person. The reason people who stay with a financial advisor long term tend to outperform those who do it themselves uh, is because that financial advisor has a personal and a financial incentive to keep them in their seat. You know that that financial advisor has uh, the mm-hmm. voice of reason in in times of, of turmoil. So in terms of like the the big picture, I feel like we're, you know, we're I'm sort of giving you the answer to the test here. But if, if you're going to do three things right with your money, there's three E's that I think you need to get correct. So the first E is education. You need to know the language of money. You need to know how compound interest works. You need to know how fees work and how they erode performance. Uh, You need to know how diversification works. You need to know how debt works. You know, you need to speak the the language of basic finance and basic investing. You need some level of education. Now, what's interesting about education is you don't need to be educated up to the point where you can necessarily do this yourself, but you need to be educated enough that you know what to look for in a partner. You know, one of the most powerful forms of education is called meta knowledge, which is basically knowing what you don't know. So like, I don't know anything about how to fix my car, but I know that I don't know. Right. So I know I know that if something happens to my car, I'll just take it. I'll take it to an expert. I don't have any I don't suffer from any delusions of knowing how to fix my car. So I know when to go get help. So education is the first E. The second E is environment. So the environment is so critical. Um, When you really become a student of behavior, you start to understand, um, sometimes disconcertingly, that we don't have as much free will as we thought. And usually most of us are as good or as bad as the situation we find ourselves in, right? So what does environment look like for an investor? 
Well, uh, first of first of all, it looks like your portfolio, right? It looks like having a portfolio uh, that is diversified enough and measured enough that you can live with its ups and downs, right? If you're in a highly volatile portfolio, that's the wrong kind of environment for most people to be making sensible investment decisions. And then the second piece of environment is making sure you're surrounding yourself with the right voices. You know, through the popular media, through the news, through the financial news, there's often a steady drumbeat of negativity. And so if that's the environment in which we're immersed, if we're immersed in this steady drumbeat of negativity, that's going to start to erode our thinking, that's going to start to erode our willpower, and then we'll, you know, sort of make the wrong decision at the wrong time. The third E is encouragement or sort of coaching. That's really where uh, an advisor adds value, right? Because even if, even if you're educated, even if you're the, in the right environment, all the research shows that things like education are actually quite a weak predictor of behavior. You know, when you look back on some of the studies uh, it's called the knowing-doing gap, like the gap between what we know we're supposed to do and what we actually do. You see that at least in the U.S., doctors and nurses smoke cigarettes at a rate significantly higher than the general population, right? So these people who all day, it's their job to tell you not to smoke, go home and then smoke, right? At a, at a rate much higher than, than the average person. They know you're not supposed to smoke. They know it's not good for you. And yet they do it anyway, because of this knowing doing gap. So that encouragement is where a good advisor comes in and sort of is that last roadblock between you and a poor decision at the moment when you're feeling scared or you're feeling greedy or, or, or thinking of doing something um, with your money. So education, environment, and encouragement, I think, are really the three big things that, that folks can get right. I think that's a really helpful um, sort of summary for people to go off, and especially that environment piece. I mean, I can't imagine how it is in the US, but in Australia, our major newspapers and online publications, they're just shouting at us every day, oh, the market went up, billions of dollars up, fell billions of dollars and one of my favorite lines um, that you'd written was that financial news is designed for clicks and eyeballs and not dollars and cents. So what are some helpful ways that our listeners can stay informed and know what's going on with their finances, with their investments, but not jump at headlines and be their own worst enemy? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and it's a foundational competency to get right. So if I go back to my time um, working with uh, working with women with eating disorders, right? When I was doing this clinical work, the first thing we would do when we were working with a new client or a new patient is we would help to educate them about the uh, unrealistic beauty standards of society, the unrealistic beauty standards of Hollywood, right? Because they would see the end product, they would see the magazine, they would see the music video or the whatever, with the, you know, flawless, perfectly put together model. And they would say, oh, that's not me, right? So you're, you're comparing every minute of your life to a highly edited highlight reel of someone else's life. It's the same thing that makes people depressed when they look at social media too much. You know, there's a lot of research now 
that shows that the, the more people, uh, the more time people spend on Instagram and Facebook and the like, uh, the, the more unhappy they become because of the same concept. So, so what do we do to, to make better decisions? We have to become an informed consumer of that media. So there's a couple of tips that, that, that I would set forth. You know, the first is to evaluate the source. You know, what are the credentials of this person? Why, um, you know, did they just find someone with good hair who could tie a necktie and, and, you know, throw them on cable financial news? Or does this does this person have a pedigree and a level of sophistication that makes them worth worth listening to? The second thing I would have them do is is to sort of question the tone and the melodrama. I love to tell this story. I wouldn't believe it if it didn't happen to me. Um, I was I won't name the channel. But I was wired up for a major international news channel and uh, getting ready to promote one of my books when it came out. And so I'm at a studio in Atlanta. This person was in Europe. Um, and you have a little earpiece in your ear where the producer can, can sort of speak to you. And so it was a commercial break. And they're like, OK, you're going to be on in five, four, three. And the producer says to me, you know, like effectively, don't be a nerd, give us something good to work with here. Right. And in that moment, I was so shocked because I'm just like, they don't want, you know, they don't want my experience. Uh, they don't want my education. They don't want sort of the moderate, well-crafted message I came here to deliver. They want, they want sensationalism. They want a headline you have to understand how these news sources make their money. And once you do, you understand uh, that the, the quote you shared is, is right on right on point. Uh, so examine the tone, question the melodrama. Daniel, can, consider I, can I jump in? Yeah, jump in. Can I ask what what did what did you what did you say when what did you do when that happened to you? Oh, nothing. I mean, I had two seconds before I was on. So you just smile and, and try and give your message as best you can. But I mean, you know, my mouth was agape. And look, to be fair, I had like a Glenn plaid suit on. I had some tortoiseshell glasses. I did look probably like a nerd. I, oh, yeah. I gave I gave her every reason. <laughs> I gave her every reason to sus suspect I would be academic and boring. But, um, you know, it just shows you, right? It shows you that the way you get compensated matters. And, and when you get compensated for, for clicks and eyeballs, you know, the, the, measured, <laughs> the measured uncertain message of, of a doctor or an economist is not as sexy as whatever doomsday scenario is being predicted. So understand how they make money, question the tone, and then just make sure they have the, the right pedigree to be opining on this in the first place, because it's not always the case. I... I turned on uh, the financial news the other day and they had uh, Gene Simmons from from the band Kiss talking about <laughs> cryptocurrency. And it's like, what what business does some rock star have to tell me about the blockchain? Right. Like, turn it off. Turn it off. <laughs> Yeah, I guess any, anyone can become an expert nowadays with Twitter and all the other platforms. Um, it seems like anyone can just say whatever they want. Um, and what, one of the other things, like once consumers have um, educated themselves, they've got themselves in the right environment and they've got people to encourage them along the way, how 
once they've got all that information, sometimes uh, we can get to that stage where we have so many choices and options available to us just because we've kind of learned about shares and ETFs and managed funds and in Australia, superannuation. And then we just can't make a decision on what to do just because this, we've educated ourselves to the level where we know we have lots of choices, but we don't quite know which one to choose. How can we sort of combat that and um, not be hamstrung by decision-making paralysis? Yeah, so for those who want to get as nerdy as as I was on my on my show, you can go check out a book called The Paradox of Choice that is that is all about this how how more choices actually are worse for us and they sort of immobilize us and lead us to make worse decisions. So The Paradox of Choice is a is a great book to check out if you're if you're super interested in this. If you want the highlight reel, I, I would give you the following tips. You know, first realize that inaction is a form of decision. You know, I think oftentimes we think, well, I don't want to decide, so I just won't decide. Uh, and, and we feel that sort of inaction or, or uh, you know, saying stagnant or, or accepting the status quo is a form of indecision. It's, it's actually a decision unto itself. So I think first we have to accept that there's no such thing as, as not making a decision. The second thing that I think we can do is, is minimize the unimportant decisions in our lives. Um, research suggests that we make 35,000 decisions per day. So that puts it at something like a 13 million decisions per year. Okay, There's no way that you can make 13 million decisions a year and have them all be, you know, tippy top there. So what you do, if you look at really successful people, President Obama did this, Mark Zuckerberg does this, they sort of streamlined the, the non-essential things in their life. Like whether it's the clothing that they wear, President Obama had seven almonds every night before he went to bed for his bedtime snack, not six, not 10, like seven almonds. He just, you know, he just had this routine where they, they had sort of streamlined the unimportant decisions in their life. The other thing we need to do is to step away from the noise of our regular tasks. You know, how often have you had a breakthrough, you know, in the shower or right as you were lying down to go to sleep? That's because you finally stepped away from the noise of your phone, your computer, you know, your, your Zoom calls, sort of the, hu the hustle and bustle of, of every day. And you gave yourself a moment of solitude uh, long enough to step away from that noise and, and the decisions sort of started to emerge or you started to think about it in new ways. And then finally, um, set a deadline. And as that deadline approaches, take care of yourself. I mean, one of the things that I wrote about in The Behavioral Investor that is incredible to consider is just how something like having a snack can materially improve the way that you make a decision. So get enough sleep, don't sort of over-index on, on drinking and caffeine. Get a snack, take good care of yourself, set a deadline, uh, and I think you'll get there. It's hmm. great advice. And um, some of the, the presentations that you've done previously allude to the fact that it's oftentimes in finance and investing, it's the simplest choices that are the most important ones to make um, about like lemons and scurvy. Um, being an interesting example that you brought up. Um, yeah, there's so much there. I mean, 
we could talk for, for years about this and, and no doubt you do on the podcast and through the books, right? You've been doing it for a long time. Um, one of the things that I know that you referenced recently, and I think it was with, when I think it was Brian, Brian Portnoy that interviewed you for your podcast. He, you mentioned that money is a shared narrative. And I think you got it from Sapiens by Yuval Harari, uh, which is a really interesting book. I love it. Um, can you explain why money is a shared narrative? And, and I guess just expound on that a little bit. Yeah. So you, Yuval Harari um, cer- certainly didn't discover this idea, but he does get a lot of credit for popularizing it. And I did love Sapiens. Mm. I, thought it was a, I thought it was a fantastic book. So basically what he talks about in there is that shared narratives are, are humankind's greatest invention, right? So, you know, more than anything else, um, you know, COVID aside, like let's, let's pretend we, let's pretend we didn't live in a world with COVID. Now we'll, we'll rewind a few years ago. So in 2019, uh, my wife and daughter flew to Australia, right? So they flew to Australia because my brother-in-law uh, married a woman, uh, married an Australian woman. So my, my wife and my daughter flew to Australia. They got off the plane in Australia and presumably they bought a sandwich or a, a water or a drink or whatever. And they transacted business with a person from another country who they've never met before and who they'll never meet again in, in all likelihood. And the thing that allowed them to do that was the shared narrative, the shared fiction of money. So we have all these shared narratives, like the borders of a country are a shared narrative. The laws of a religion or a state or a country are a shared narrative. You know, sort of the the rules of business, the rules of the road, all of these things are a shared narrative and they allow us to give order and form and function um, to, to our world. So money is the biggest shared narrative of all. But what's interesting and what what Harari talks about is because it's a shared narrative and nothing that sort of exists in physical material form, it's subject to some sort of psychological distortions, right? So set that aside for a moment and let's visit some of the some of the seminal research that was done on shared narratives and, and peer pressure. So there was work done by a gentleman named Dr. Solomon Ash that was uh, work that was done on conformity or sort of social pressure, peer pressure. And what he asked people to do, he showed them two um, sort of two cards. One card had a line on it of a certain length. And then the other side of the card had three lines of, of, of different lengths, one of which corresponded to the line on the left. And he said, you know, uh, which which line on the right looks the most like the line on the left. Now, if I showed you or anyone listening to this program this, every single one of you would get it right. Like it's as easy. I mean, it, it couldn't be any easier. But what Ash did was he introduced uh, peer pressure into this experiment. So the person that was being tested was not sort of in on the joke and seven people would go before them and give the wrong answer, right? So let's say the correct answer is A. Every one of the seven people before them that were confederates of the experiment would say, it's C, it's C, it's C, it's definitely C. And so by the time they get to the eighth person, 76% of the time, that eighth person 
gave the answer C and not the correct answer A. Now, it's incredible to think that something as easy as judging how long a line is could be influenced by a shared narrative. But what's even more interesting is this was done, I think, in the 70s. But what's more interesting is we can do the ASH experiment today with, with modern technology and, and look at people's brain patterns they're, you know, they're through a fMRI. And what we find is it's not the part of the brain associated with peer pressure or groupthink that is lighting up when these people are getting the line wrong. It's actually the part of the brain associated with sensation and perception. So that should really blow your mind. It's not that these people are just getting bullied into making the wrong choice. They're physically seeing it incorrectly because everyone else saw it incorrectly. So what's the takeaway of all this rambling, right? The takeaway of all this rambling (laughs) is that money is a shared fiction, right? Money is something that we all agree on. And so it doesn't sort of um, obey the rules of physics. It doesn't obey natural laws. It obeys laws of psychology. And if enough people around us are believing in something, it can warp sort of the true value or the perception of that in our eyes. Yeah, I think it's um, there's been many examples recently and I, I just sort of that cryptocurrency comes to mind where people have created a shared narrative that didn't exist maybe 20 years ago, but suddenly there is this narrative now that a lot of people believe in. And so regardless of people's opinions, I think it's really interesting that construction there. Yeah, you know, and Nassim Taleb talks about the Lindy effect, right, which is uh, effectively the longer something has been around, the longer it's likely to be around, right? So something like the Iliad or the Odyssey, right, in terms of literature, it's been around for a long time, it'll probably be, you know, around a long time from now, whereas, you know, today's bestseller, you probably couldn't say the same thing about So what's interesting about cryptocurrency is the longer it hangs around, sort of the longer it's likely to hang around, the more Lindy it becomes. And so whereas I think early on in in cryptocurrency's history, you could have made a case for it being, you know, sort um, sort of risky, I think the longer that it sticks around, um, the, the more permanent it becomes. Yeah, and in terms of um, some positive peer pressure on today's show, I was wondering if you are able to identify a few activities or sort of insights that our listeners can do to improve their sort of general investment process, where whether they're investing in shares, ETFs, funds, or superannuation. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I'd keep those three E's top of mind, right? I think if you get those three E's right, you're going to be uh, well set up. But I, I'll say two additional things in, in addition to those three E's. Um, I would say that in as much as behavior is sort of the foundational layer of of all this making money that we've talked about today, the process of of getting to know yourself. Uh, can't be divorced from the process of of making money. 
you know, the process of, of going to therapy or reading books about why you do the things that you do. Um, all of this is sort of hand in glove with this journey of achieving financial freedom. So I think a lot of times people read books like mine and they, they go, oh, wow, like that's totally my wife or my, you know, my husband or my partner or that. Yep. Yeah, my neighbor does that silly thing. Really, we need to be, you know, sort of turning this back in on ourselves and, and realizing um, our own shortcomings, our own behavioral hangups. And then the second thing I would <clears throat> I would tell folks, Morningstar did research a while back to try and pinpoint the the number one predictor of of a fund's performance. And I bet almost no one will guess what it is. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe your listeners are are so dialed in that they'll get it. The number one predictor was was fee, right? The number one predictor was the price of the fund. So the lower the cost, the better on average the fund tended to do. So it wasn't things like, you know, the pedigree of the fund manager. It wasn't things like, you know, last five years performance. It wasn't the style of the fund. So, you know, all else equal, um, fund fees tend to erode performance. So uh, there's, there's never been a better time to be an investor. It's, it's never been cheaper to own the world to get exposure to the entire world and a host of, of asset classes. So go learn about yourself uh, and then go go buy the world in, in the cheapest way possible. Uh, in your book, The Behavioral Investor, um, you talk about some psychological tendencies and, and you've kind of bucketed them into like big four big ones, um, being ego, conservatism, attention, and emotion. Without giving too much away from the book, uh, can you maybe just reflect on some of the things that people can be mindful of or like just give us a teaser at what those four things might be? Yeah, so what what I tried to do, like like you said in the book, was there's something like 200 plus different behavioral biases and it's not a very empowering thing to say to an investor, you know, look, there's 200 ways that you could screw this up. And so what I, you know, what I wanted to, what I wanted to do was to kind of arrive at some meta biases, some sort of meta tendencies that, that dramatically impacted the way uh, we behave with money. So the first one is ego. Um, You know, ego takes a couple of forms, but broadly it's overconfidence. You know, it's thinking we are smarter than the next person, luckier and more um, more prescient about the future. So, you know, overconfident people, which is uh, incidentally just about all of us. You know, we think we're we're luckier than average. We think we know what's coming down the road, and and all this causes us to do things like overtrade or to under diversify or to sort of do too much with our money, right? There was a, I posted on LinkedIn today, a hilarious, there was hilarious research that was done on like a list of animals and it asked people which animals they thought they could beat in a fight, right? So it was like, could you beat, you know, (laughs) could you beat a mouse, a cat, a dog, a bear, an alligator, like all, you know, all of these things. And they asked this question to like 2000 Americans and 2000 folks from the UK 
And in every case, the Americans were dramatically more confident than than the Britons that they could <laughs> that they could beat up this animal, right? So there's there's regional. Uh, incidentally, I don't think that eight percent of Americans can beat up a grizzly bear, which is what the what the results showed. But you know, there's regional differences. There's gender differences. You know, men tend to be way more overconfident than women. Like very consistently, we find that women are better investors than men. And that men are way more overconfident. So that's all sort of ego. Um, emotion is just what it sounds like. It's just sort of letting the the heart get in the way of the head when making investment decisions. Letting sort of our emotions override our our intellect. Uh, attention is the process of confusing what is loud with what is likely. So when you look at the brain's retrieval mechanism, we know that like the way that we remember things gets colored by a host of things. It gets colored by the mood you're in, right? It gets colored um, by the order in which things occur. And one of the things that, that predicts very highly our ability to, to remember something is if it's sort of rare or scary, so, you know, one of my examples, I know, I know you guys like this example, is that, you know, far more people die every year taking selfies, like many, many, many times more people die every year taking selfies than die of shark attack. And yet, you know, anytime there's a shark attack, you hear about it on the news all across the world for six months. You don't hear about the person who sort of drunkenly stumbled into traffic trying to take a selfie, right? Even though it happens many, many times more, it's it's far more likely that you get hurt taking a selfie than than that you get bit by a shark. So we we tend to confuse things that are improbable and you know sort of loud and scary with things that are likely to happen when when that tends not to be the case. And, and then finally, there's conservatism, uh, which is our tendency to have a preference for things that we know and our tendency to prefer things that, that feel safe. So like an example of this, an example of this, I lived in Canada. I lived in Western Canada for about four months and it was awesome. And I totally love Canada and Canadians were the nicest people ever. But, you know, I was working at a bank there. And when you look at the portfolios of the people who come in, they were consistently 80 to 90 percent Canadian equities. You know, Canada uh, represents like three and a half percent of the world's equity. And yet these folks had 90 percent of their wealth in Canadian equities, which are like heavily skewed towards things like timber and oil. And so they end up taking a very concentrated bet based on their familiarity with the economy of, of Canada. And it ends up that you sort of triple stack your bet, right? It's like you live in Canada, you work in Canada, now you own all these Canadian stocks, like you're kind of living and dying with, with, the, uh, with the fortunes of Canada, and so I'm not picking on Canadians. People all over the world do this. Americans do this too. America is just a much bigger economy, so it's not quite as, as damaging. So this is something that we see people all over the world doing, sort of over-indexing on industries they know, companies they know, countries they know, and thinking they're safe 
because they've put all their eggs in the basket of the thing they know, when actually they're sort of multiplying their risks in, in a way that's not always apparent to them. Daniel, um, just to reflect on that, uh, that study that you, you, you brought up before, um, 61% of Americans say they could beat up a goose, um, which is pretty interesting considering, you know, 49% say a dog um, and a house cat, 69% say they could beat up a house cat, um, which is interesting. I would have thought a cat is a more worthy adversary than a goose. <laughs> But it's a fascinating study. We'll put a link in the show notes to that one. The the study the study kind of blew my mind because it was it was like way too low on one end and way too high on the other end. Because it's like, who are the thirty percent of people that think they can't beat up a mouse, right? Like, and then <laughs> and then like, who are the whatever six or eight percent of people who who do think they can beat up a grizzly bear? So it was interesting. I was less interested in the specifics of the study and more interested in the fact that Americans were always the most overconfident people in the room, which I think, you know, is not exactly a secret on the international stage. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, I think if, the, if this topic interested listeners, and I know uh, probably five years ago reading The Behavioral Investor, that really kicked off. Uh, a different exploration of finance and behavior and psychology for me. Uh, what are some of the most, your favorite books, podcasts, talks that um, you'd recommend diving into further that if they want to explore this topic, they can really get their teeth into? Yeah. So I think, I think podcasts are a, a great way to go. I will give a shameless plug for my own podcast. That's called standard deviations. Nothing makes me happier in life than seeing downloads from across the world. It's the it's the statistic I follow with the most with the most joy every week is is who's tuning in. So standard deviations is my podcast where I talk about these things. Uh, Hidden Brain is another podcast that's excellent. Uh, if you're interested in sort of brain science, if you're interested uh, in sort of the psychology of every day, Hidden Brain by uh, National Public Radio is is very good. Uh, in terms of books, of course, again, uh, my books, The Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor, I would read them in that order. Uh, the Laws of Wealth is more foundational. The Behavioral Investor is a little more advanced and, and builds on those topics. Um, if I had to pick two outside of the books that I've written, I would say that Nudge, uh, which just came out with a new edition, Nudge is a fantastic read. And uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Danny Kahneman, the uh, Nobel Prize winner, also excellent. It's very long. Like if you only read that, if you're really prepared to go on a journey, but, but Nudge and Thinking Fast and Slow were both written by Nobel, Nobel Prize winning uh, intellectual lights in this world of behavioral economics and behavioral finance. So lots of great stuff there. Fantastic. We'll provide links in all the show notes and we'll We'll email them out to our to our uh, subscribers as well. Uh, Daniel, we really, really appreciate you taking the time. I think it's like 6.30, 7 o'clock where you are. It's 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. here in, in Melbourne. So after hours for you, we really appreciate it, mate. Thanks for joining Kate and I. No, my, my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. 
If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at risk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au. 